0: We're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, and throughout the book of Hebrews, it's demonstrated time and time and time again that Jesus is better. He's better than anything and everything we have ever known, and especially to these Hebrew believers who had come from an old covenant mindset of the law and the prophets and all of those things which were so vitally important to the story of redemption. It was especially important for these old, old uh, uh, Hebrew believers here to come into the understanding of the new covenant and what Jesus Christ had established for them. And indeed for them, it was important for them to see that Jesus is better. He's better than that old system. He's better than the laws and the prophets and better than the angels and better than all these things that they were so enamored with. He's better than them all. Once and time and time again throughout this book of the Bible, we uh, see that especially. Now, in chapter number 7 in particular, it introduces an idea that is carried out even more so throughout the next three chapters. In chapter 7, Jesus is introduced as a better high priest. And he's the only high priest you'll ever need. We learned that as we studied that chapter of the Bible. And then in, verse, in chapters 8, 9, and 10 the Bible begins to show us how much better his high priestly ministry really is. How? Well, in chapter number 8, we found that he administers as our high priest on the basis of a better covenant, a new covenant. In chapter number 9, which we're looking at today, we find that he's administering his high priestly ministry in a better sanctuary than what they had in the Old Testament. And in chapter 10 will learn that he's he's able to administer a a better high priestly ministry because there was a better sacrifice that was offered up for sin. And it's beautiful how the Bible puts all of these truths together for us here. And so in Hebrews chapter 9 in particular, God shows us how Jesus ministers as our high priest on our behalf in a better sanctuary. Now, there was... This was something that was very significant for these Hebrew believers to begin to understand. Jesus had come and established a new covenant, which was now being administered through a new heavenly sanctuary. And it wasn't through the the old tabernacle that was here on earth that the worship of the Lord was to take place. The old tabernacle had been done away with. It was nothing more than an object lesson now. And that's going to be critical as we get ready in the coming weeks to look at the different various items of that old tabernacle. I'm thankful that we don't have to try to approach God today through a tent. I don't know about you, I'm very glad about that. But for these Hebrew believers, the temple was still standing. They still very much felt that they needed to go to the temple in order to communicate with God. They had to go through a priest. By the way, any religion that tries to tell you that you need to talk to God through a priest is a false religion. We're going to see that conveyed on the pages of Scripture here today. And so that old tabernacle was just an object lesson now. I like what John Phillips said on this. He said, all the picture books were now put away. Now, Maybe I like this so much because I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Or a six-year-old. She turned six on Friday. A six-year-old and and an almost three-year-old. And they like reading books with pictures in them. Let's be honest. How many of you like reading books with pictures in them still? All right. Thank you. Thank you for being honest. Uh, Pop-up books. No, I'm just kidding. Well, all the picture books have now been put away here in Hebrews, and God is calling his people today to a more mature faith based on spiritual rather than temporal things. And that's so true. And so at the end of chapter number 8, look with me at verse 13, because this is exactly what the last verse in chapter 8 communicates to us, when it says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first, what? All right, now I told you, when God calls something old, you better believe it, it's old, okay? Uh, some of you say, oh, I'm not old yet. Well, if God says something's old, it's old. I'm not saying God said you're old, but he said that old covenant was old, Is old. And that, and that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So Hebrews chapter 9 gives us a great contrast between the earthly tabernacle, sanctuary, and the heavenly sanctuary. And in it, it teaches us a wonderful lesson about how Jesus executes, administers His high priestly ministry on our behalf today. Now, I ask you to study this passage of Scripture. I hope you at least read it this week, because God has some wonderful truths He wants us to understand from it. Let's bow our heads together and ask God to speak to us through His Word now as we get into Hebrews chapter 9. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Lord, the truth, I cannot get away from it. I cannot fail to communicate what you have said in the Scriptures, regardless of what tradition or religion may try to say to the contrary. Lord, you've made very clear your truth. To me, I thank you. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would work Make it clear to us all as we dig into the Scriptures today. Lord, I'm not the only one that can understand the Bible. I'm sure there are many things in this passage of Scripture I don't understand. In fact, I know there are. But Lord, I pray that your Spirit would teach us, all of us, me, every person in here, and help us come into the the fullness of the reality of the truth that you've conveyed here on the pages of Scripture. Lord, soften our hearts. Holy Spirit, let this not just be a teaching time tonight but a time of transformation as you renew our minds with your word. And I pray, God, you truly do that tonight. And I just ask for a special anointing, and Lord, that you would do something that only you can do as we study the Scriptures tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Now let me pause here, right from the beginning, to remind you that everything that was set forth in the Old Testament, the Bible makes clear, God gave us those things as an example for today. Now, it's an example. It's a prototype, but it's still relevant. That's why I get frustrated when people say, well, you don't need to read the Old Testament. That's, been, that, that's old. That's done away with now. Hey, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God Amen. and is profitable. The Bible says in Romans 15, 4. By the way, how many of you got notes tonight? How many of you didn't get notes tonight? You need some. All right, good. Whoever was doing that did their job. Thank you. But Romans, Romans 15 and verse 4 On your notes, it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And so God does have some lessons, some things that are true for us from the types and shadows of the Old Testament that he does want to teach to us. And that is also made clear here, especially in, in Hebrews chapter 9. And so the type of the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle, is one of those types of things that the Lord wants to use to teach us some wonderfully important truth for our reality today as believers in Jesus Christ. And so let's take some time to begin to uncover what God has to teach us through the type of the tabernacle. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse number 1. If you're there with me, say amen. The Bible says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made... The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the shoebread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Just to make things clear to you here, the Bible's talking about the actual tent of the tabernacle. The first portion you'd come to when you entered into that tent was the holy place where those first instruments that were listed there in verse 2 were were placed. And the second place you'd come to is the place we often refer to as the holy of holies. It's a doubly holy place, uh, sanctified in the Scriptures, the holiest of all. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. As verse 4 says, Which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. And so the Bible begins to introduce the idea of the tabernacle or the sanctuary. Two different words are used to describe this place in the scriptures, and I want to define both of them. I believe I gave a, a short definition in your notes. The first word is, that's used is sanctuary. That word sanctuary is, comes from a Greek word that literally speaks of a place that's set apart exclusively for God. I'm going somewhere with this, so hang with me. Sanctuary, a place set apart exclusively for God. The word tabernacle is a different Greek word They're used in verse number um, two, for there was a tabernacle made. That word tabernacle literally means habitation. Now put these two ideas together and get an understanding of what the Bible's talking to us about here. The tabernacle, the sanctuary, is a place that was set apart for God's habitation. In other words, it was a place designated for God's presence to abide. And that was one of the defining characteristics of the Old Testament tabernacle. was that God's presence would fill that place. One of the defining things that you read about in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God used an earthly tabernacle to teach His people some things. He used this old tabernacle, this earthly tabernacle, to teach His people Both how to enter into His presence and how to live in His continual presence. They had all these laws and regulations in order to be able to maintain that. Now, we know this to be true. What the Bible tells us at the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, is in your notes. You see it there? Verse 34, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You know what the Hebrews would sometimes call this glory? The Shekinah glory. What they would refer to it as. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and fire on it by night and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so we find that the Bible teaches us that Old Testament earthly tabernacle was a place set apart for the very presence of God to abide among the nation of Israel. Now, this is critical for our understanding of what we're about to see from the Scripture. Because although it was a place for God's presence to abide, that earthly tabernacle still had many things left to be desired. You see, that earthly tabernacle was very limited in what it could actually provide to the people of God. For example, it was made out of items that would corrode. It was an earthly tabernacle. No not care how fine the material was that they used, but if it was made of things of the earth, it was eventually going to fizzle and fade away. Not only that, but in that earthly tabernacle, only a certain group of people could go in. Levites. And beyond that, only one person out of all Israel could actually go into that tabernacle and go into the inner portion of that tabernacle, into the actual presence of God. And that was the high priest, one time a year, On the Day of Atonement. You talk about it being limited. It was very limited in its functionality. And uh, and there's significance for us uh, in that truth right there. And so God determined here in, in the New Testament to do away with the Old Covenant and to establish a new covenant which would now be administered through a better tabernacle. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11... Now this isn't in your notes, it's in your Bible, Hebrews 9 and verse 11. It says, but, but Christ, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong place here. Hold on a second. I'll find it. Yeah, this it is verse 11. I, I was looking at verse 9, because I told you to go to chapter 9, but I was looking at verse 9. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, read this next phrase with me, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And so Jesus came. He's a better high priest. He's established a new covenant by which, uh, uh, under which now we who have believed in him operate. And as he administers this new covenant, as our high priest, he's doing so not through the old earthly tabernacle, but through a heavenly tabernacle. A perfect and a better tabernacle is what the Bible literally tells to us there. And so, get this, in every way that the earthly tabernacle was limited, it is now set free in Jesus Christ. All those, all the things that are listed in Hebrews chapter 9 that talk to us about the limitations of the earthly tabernacle, hey, there are no more limitations in those respects because now they've been done away in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And because of the finished work of Jesus, God wants us to understand how we can enjoy the continual presence of God through the heavenly tabernacle. It's not so far off, distant place and only one location on the earth where you can possibly find the presence of God. Now, God wants to bring the presence of God right to you. Through His finished work. And that's what the Scriptures begins to convey to us here. And so here, at this point, there's a question that we need to ask and consider together. And here's the question, where is this heavenly tabernacle? I wrestled with this a lot this week. Where is this heavenly tabernacle? The Old Testament earthly tabernacle, it was a truly spectacular construction. And we're going to study it more in more detail in the coming weeks. Every item was made with precision and with detail and with finery. I, I imagine that the Old Testament tabernacle would be a lot, of, a lot like many of the Mormon temples you'd walk into today and the Catholic churches because it's all about the exterior, it's all about the showmanship. And that, that was important. And it was important that they make it that way because of the wonderful spiritual truths that they represented. And God was very particular about how he wanted that tabernacle to be made. And yet, we know today, as Stephen pointed out in Acts chapter 7, and this is in your notes, he said in Acts chapter 7, that the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. As saith the prophet, heaven is my throne, the Lord said, and earth is my footstool. And what house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all these things? Hey, the fact is, we cannot contain God in a building. You can try to do it as much as you want to, but you cannot contain almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God in a building. And we are so vain as humanity to think that we can Okay? You can't do it. And there's no special place on earth where God alone can dwell and be, and be at. All right? God, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, the Bible says, beholding the evil and the good. And yet we want to try to put God in a box so that we can understand him better. But that is our tendency as human beings. It's our nature as humanity to want to limit God to a building or a figure. That's why if you go over into Asia today, they've tried to make God into a fat little statue. They call him Buddha. Now I'm especially favorable of Buddha because when I was a kid, I was a fat kid, and my parents called me Buddha baby. Okay. So if you have a fat, if you have a fat kid, you can call him Buddha baby. It'll mess with his psyche, though. Okay. Okay. It didn't really mess with me that much. But we want to put God into forms and figures, and we want to limit God into locations so we can understand them better. So so we can go talk to him when we want to. And th- this is where God is. And Or th- this is my God. And we want to, we want to put him into forms and figures. That's, that's the nature of humanity. And yet Jesus explained in John chapter 4, Jesus explained to the woman at the well that though we want to say how and where God can be worshipped, the day was coming, and indeed it's already come, when the true worshippers of God would be able to do so apart from any type of physical limitation. In John chapter 4, Look at what Jesus said to the woman at the well. He said, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, the woman at the well is a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans had made their own temple. The Jews had their temple. Where was that at? Jerusalem. Now I know you're paying attention, okay? They had their tabernacle or their temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews said, this is where we worship God. And the Samaritans said, no, no. This is where we worship God. And everybody had their place where they go and worship God. All right? Try to limit God to a place again. And Jesus told that woman, Hey, the day's coming. Well, it's not going to be about here or there. It's not going to be about limiting God to a physical location. He said going on in verse 23, but the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And he says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So listen, though we often call this building, it's often called by people the house of God, we understand that, hey, this is not the only place where we will find God. And that is a wrong theology. That is a wrong idea to call a physical building a house of God. You can't contain God in a building. Um, we always learned in Sunday school when we were kids, and I can't remember how the how the hand motions go, but I can't even remember how the rhyme goes right now. Some of you probably remember it. Uh, The church is not a a building or a steeple. The church is a people. Oh, I can't remember how the poem goes right now, but uh, we're going to get to the significance of that statement here in just a minute, and so we know that the heavenly tabernacle, where it isn't, is in some physical location, in some physical building. That's not, that can't be uh, the Lord didn't die and be, be buried and raised again just to establish another earthly tabernacle. Okay? He was pointing us to something that was better. Okay? Definition of insanity doing, the, doing something the same way and expecting, to, expecting different results. Uh, what, not the same old story here. Jesus completely flipped the script when he, was, when he died for our sins. And so that leaves the question where is the heavenly tabernacle? You say, oh, I know, I know, Pastor. It's in heaven. Well, that, that's, that's the obvious um, implication, right? Well, it's got to be in heaven, right? Well, yes and no. And I'm going to tell you why as we look at the scripture together. Hebrews makes clear that yes, Christ did enter into the heavens once, into the presence of God, into a heavenly tabernacle to finish the work of the new covenant. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 24. Are you there with me? It says in verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ is entered into the heaven for us. I love that truth right there. And let me tell you why. Everything the physical tabernacle represented has a real spiritual likeness. It's what the Bible's getting across to us here in this chapter. And yet, the real likeness doesn't necessarily, or isn't necessarily made of the same composition that the earthly tabernacle was made from. In other words, okay, um, there was a brazen altar in the earthly tabernacle. It doesn't mean that there's some heavenly big brazen altar sitting up in heaven today. Okay? They were all figures, earthly figures, that signified spiritual truths. God is a spirit; that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so, understand the distinction here. Now, verse twenty-four. Look at it again. The Bible tells us that Christ is entered into the whole, not into the holy places made with hands. In other words, Jesus didn't go into that earthly tabernacle to finish the work of our redemption. It couldn't happen there. These things, the things made with hands, the earthly tabernacle, the Bible says, are figures of the what? Of the true, they're figures of the true. That word "true" in the Greek is uh, uh, a and it literally speaks of that which not only has the name and resemblance, but the real nature corresponding to the name. In other words, hey, the things that were in the Old Testament tabernacle, they were just they were they were just figurines representing what the actual thing was going to be like. That's all they were. Types and shadows. Now the Lord used those during that dispensation. And and certainly, I don't minimize that truth right there, but now that we know the rest of the story, we get to see what those things represented. And this is so significant. In other words, this word true, in verse number 24, it literally means, um, it speaks of that which is truly genuine. Okay? We're not dealing with forms and figures, figurines now. Jesus is the real deal. And that's what the Hebrews is trying to get across to us here. Now, most of what the earthly tabernacle pictured, it points right to Jesus himself. Yes. I love this as I, did, as I studied this this week. In the book of Revelation, for example, look at what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. It says, and I saw no temple therein, Talking about heaven. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are what? Whoa. Whoa. You mean there's not a physical temple sitting in heaven today? I mean there's not a physical temple sitting in heaven today. I'm saying the whole temple, the tabernacle, is just a picture of Jesus. Jesus. He said, well, you're making that up. Okay, well, I'm trying to give you the Bible on this thing. What else does Revelation say? Verse 23. It says, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Guess what? No candlestick in heaven. I don't need one. Jesus is what it typifies. Jesus is everything that it pointed to. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. What I'm saying is everything we learn about from that Old Testament tabernacle just points to Jesus who is the real deal. And guess what? I'm glad I get to relate with Jesus instead of a golden stick. (laughs) My life is a whole lot better because of that. I'm glad I don't have to walk into some building and and, and, and observe all of these earthly instruments in order to be able to enter into the presence of God. I'm glad I know God Himself and God Himself lives in me. Amen. It changes the whole dynamic here. He is the one that everything else in the old tabernacle was just a resemblance of. All the shadows of the Old Testament were of Jesus. All of the figures of the temple were made to resemble Jesus. And boy, uh, we could spend weeks studying the tabernacle and bringing out all the pictures and types that are there. And we will spend a message doing that later on, but we need to give this introductory thing here. And so as we study the tabernacle, it all really just points us to Jesus Christ. Now this next part is very important, Okay. You, you hear me out on this next part. Don't let your mind wander off. Stay engaged. Jesus, after his crucifixion and burial, he rose again. We know this. And the reason he rose again was to fulfill his role as our high priest and offering up his own blood as an atonement for our sins. That's one of the things that he accomplished By the power of his resurrection. Let's look at some scripture. Romans 4 and verse 25. The Bible says that Jesus was delivered for our offenses. And read the last phrase with me. And was raised again for our justification. Jesus died for our sins to pay the price for our sins. But he was raised again. Justification means to declare righteous. He rose again to declare us righteous before God. He accomplished that by applying his blood of atonement. For our sins. And this is one of the reasons I believe that after Jesus rose again, anybody remember the first person that first person physically speaking that he met? Who it was? Mary. Mary Magdalene. This is one of the reasons I believe that when Jesus met Mary Magdalene, right after he'd risen from the dead, he said in John chapter 20, verse 17 to her Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but I go to my brethren. uh, But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Now, Jesus was fulfilling the scriptures here. I believe in this statement. Some people would disagree with me on this, and I'll be clear in stating that to you here. But when when the Old Testament high priest sacrificed the blood of the atonement, which was offered up once a year, From the time He shed that blood on the altar to the time He went in before the mercy seat to apply that blood to atone for the the national sins of Israel, He could not be touched. Jesus, after He offered Himself up as a sacrifice for our sins, from the time He rose again to fulfill Scripture, He could not be touched. Why? I need to ascend to my Father to apply the blood, to atone for the sins of the world. That's why. Jesus rose again to accomplish the atoning work of our redemption. And the Bible makes it so clear to us. And so Jesus went to a place that you and I could never go into in and of ourselves. You know where he went to? He went into the very presence of God. And I'm not talking about in a little tent out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. I'm not talking about before a golden box that was a representation of the presence of God. I'm talking about Jesus went into the very presence of God. I'll tell you something, no earthly high priest has ever been there before. Never could go there. You and I as sinful beings could never go there. Our sins have separated between God and us. And there's no way we could ever go there, but there was one person who could go there. There's one person who didn't have to come here and die for our sins, but he did. And he came down here and died for our sins so that he could go back before the presence of his father with his own blood being shed and apply it for the atonement of our sins so that you and I could also enter in. And that's what the scripture begins to show us next here uh, in our Bibles. This is why Jesus told us in John 14:6, hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm the only way, I'm your only way in. I'm your only way into the presence of God. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified of in due time. That's Jesus. This is the work that Jesus has accomplished for us. And so understand, under the old covenant, the people of God were shut out of the presence of God. Now, the presence of God abode in the camp, but the people couldn't approach unto it. It was a far-off, distant thing. Only the priest could enter the tabernacle. Only the high priest, once a year, could enter into the Holy of Holies, into the place that actually symbolized the presence of God. And uh, that just made matters worse right there. And so, between the people and the place that represented God's p- presence... The mercy seat, the holy of holies, the Bible says that there was a thick veil uh, that was in that place right there. A veil, a curtain. It's a very thick curtain. In fact, I was reading some people that that even say that it it could have been up to uh, two feet thick or or thicker than that. Now, I I haven't studied that enough to know whether or not that's true. But I'm just trying to envision how much a two-foot curtain, thick curtain, would weigh. (laughs) All right? Uh, I don't even know if there's any legitimacy to that. But it, it was a curtain nonetheless. It was a veil. A veil in the tabernacle. Now, most of the people couldn't even see in the tabernacle. It was was, was a tent. But inside that tabernacle, there was another veil between the Holy of Holies and the holy place. And that Holy of Holies was a place where God's presence dwelt. And there was a veil that separated God's people from being able to go in God's presence. A very vivid, real demonstration of how far people God, how far people were from God's presence and how distant they were. Very real. The Bible tells us that Jesus, through his perfect sacrifice for our sins, rent that veil in two. You go read Matthew chapter 27, where the Bible says that the veil of the temple was rent in twain. That was a, that was a thick veil. And when Jesus was sacrificed for our sins was rent in twain. Now later in Hebrews chapter 10 we find out that the veil represents something. You know what it represents? Jesus Jesus Christ's flesh. His earthly life. Which was rent on the cross. And because of that atoning sacrifice He's made a way for us to be able to enter in to the presence of God. We'll get to that more later. And now Jesus... Because he's died, now through his high priestly atoning work, he has applied his blood on our behalf in the very presence of God in heaven, on heaven's mercy seat, forever dealing with our sins that had once separated us from God. Now, believer, through your faith in Jesus Christ, you can come into the very presence of God without hesitation, without fear, because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Look down in your notes, Ephesians 2.13. The Bible says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off or made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ... The Bible says later in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with Pure water. I'm going to to tell you something this evening. Jesus Christ has given us the ability to come right into the presence of God. And that is what the scriptures, as we'll see as we go verse by verse uh, thoroughly in coming weeks, truly conveys to us in this wonderful chapter of scripture. And so Jesus has given us the ability to enter into God's presence by faith. Now here's the question. He's given us the ability to enter into God's presence. Do you have to go to heaven then to enter into God's presence? I asked you, where's the heavenly tabernacle? Hmm. Let's think about this. Does that mean that one day I'll be able to enter into God's presence? Does that mean that I can somehow be transported from this body into the heavenlies to enter into God? What does that mean? Where is the heavenly tabernacle? you have to go to heaven to be in God's presence. I believe the answer is no. And you listen to this statement. Through Jesus' finished work, He has established, He has set up His tabernacle in our hearts. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I, this is one of those things, as I studied this this week, I was struggling with it. And I texted somebody and I, <laughs> I just, I couldn't believe it. And yet it's so obvious from the scriptures. It's, it, it, it's so fundamental, but I, I struggled with it. Jesus, through his finished work, has set up camp in our hearts. His tabernacle in our hearts throughout the New Testament. The Apostle's. Referred to their physical bodies as the tabernacle. Let me give you a, a verse of scripture: 1 Peter or 2 Peter, chapter one, of verse thirteen. It says, "Yea, I meet. I, I, I think it meet as long as I am in this what tabernacle. tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this what okay. tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Get this." The old old tabernacle was a place set apart for God's presence among His people. It was one location where God's presence was. It was among His people. The heavenly tabernacle, the new tabernacle, however, is a place set apart for God's presence within His people. Not among His people, within His people. This is what the Bible begins to communicate us back in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. It said, now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, read the last phrase with me, which the Lord pitched, and not man, in other words, it's not a earthly tabernacle, it's a heavenly tabernacle. It's something that God has set up. It's not something that we have set up for ourselves. And so once God has set up his tabernacle within you, he's not going anywhere. Jesus himself gave us this promise. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 20, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. Amen. And amen for that. I'm glad the Lord, by His Spirit, which He has placed within every believer, has set up a tabernacle within our hearts. I'm glad I have His presence by promise, not By my actions, not by my great ability to somehow transport myself up into the heavenlies. But the Lord Jesus has set up his tabernacle within the heart of every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. We often talk about how Jesus is in our hearts and how we have God within us, the spirit of God within us. But we don't want to take it this far. And I'll tell you why, as we conclude here tonight. Because of religion. And because of an attachment to the Old Covenant, the law, legalism. Now don't miss this tonight. Religion tries to reinvent the types and shadows of the Old Testament to control you. To control your life. Let me give you some examples. Religion wants you to think that God's presence is secluded to a building. Why? So they can get you to come to that building. Mormons, Catholics, many of the liturgical, formal Protestants, and sadly, many Baptists too. Come to the house of God. God met with us today. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the presence of them. That's not actually what it's even talking about. You study the context of that. Guess what? God's present with me, even if you're not there. I have God's spirit living inside of me. We come up with all these phrases, and that's what religion does. Religion wants you to think there is a special class of people who can approach God's presence and have special access to God's truth. If we were preaching religion here today, I would want you to believe that I have a special knowledge about God that you cannot possibly attain. Well, I went to Bible college. I did. I'm thankful for it. It doesn't make me smarter about the scriptures than you. The priests, you have to go to God through the priests in many religions. That's what religion does. But here's the big kicker. Some of you won't like this. Religion wants to put back up the veil that Jesus tore down. I wanted to get a veil up here to demonstrate this. I'll probably try in coming weeks. But it wants to put back up the veil that the Bible has already told us Jesus has tore down. So the law says when I sin as a believer, the veil is shut. I am now estranged from God. I'm outside the presence of God. You don't deny it because this is exactly what we do. We want to put the veil back up. So how do we get back in to God's presence? I got to get forgiven again. Now somehow in our minds... We quantify this in different ways. Some religion says, I just need to get saved again. But we're Baptists. Once saved, always saved. We know that. And it's true. I don't belittle that. But somehow we still need to get forgiven again. Somehow the veil still closes in our human minds. So we need to ask to be forgiven again. And again, What does the veil represent? Hmm? Hebrews chapter 10 said it was His flesh. What did He do to tear that veil down? He died on a cross. That's how He tore that veil down. If you think that you can be forgiven and then you sin after and the veil gets put back up, Guess what that means? Jesus needs to die again for you to go back in. And this is exactly what we already learned in Hebrews chapter 6. Go back there. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 4. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away. It's giving a stereotypical situation that, by the way, if you're truly saved, this is an impossibility. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. You listen to me this evening. If you can be kicked out of the presence of God, the veil can be put back up, then that means Jesus needs to die again for your sins. And guess what? That's why every Sunday at a Catholic church, every Saturday at a Catholic church, they take up a communion that they say that bread and that juice becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. What are they doing? Well, for one, if that was true, it's cannibalism. For two... They're crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting him to an open chain. Because all of a sudden, I need to be forgiven again, and again, and again, and again, and again. We already learned this in Hebrews 6. I'm going to tell you something. Stop trying to put Jesus back on the cross. Amen. The Bible said he died, and he died once for all. Gave a forever forgiveness from the penalty of our sin. He has given us full access whereby we can boldly approach the very throne of His grace and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Oh, we need to be reminded of this truth right here. Believe that His once for all sacrifice on the cross has forever sanctified you. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. Let's read it out loud together. You ready? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. Ready? Begin. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Sanctified, remember what the sanctuary means? A set-apart place for God. Sanctified means to be set-apart set apart exclusively for God. By the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has set us apart. What does that mean? Hey, to put it in the terms of what we're studying here tonight, he set up his tabernacle in your heart. Amen. You have been sanctified. Not because of your merit or goodness, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You don't lose your sanctified status based on your own effort. You didn't get your sanctified status based on your own effort, and you don't lose it. Now, we are ever-growing in the grace of the Lord and the understanding of these truths. But these truths are fundamental for us to understand what the Bible goes on to tell us in the book of Hebrews. Now, final thing I want us to consider before we're done this evening. If your body has been set apart for a habitation of God's Spirit, there is one thing about the earthly tabernacle you need to understand to bring this whole truth around to fruition. And hang with me here, we're almost done. Just outside the tabernacle, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament As we saw also in Hebrews, there was the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle. Outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place. Just outside the tabernacle was a place. You know what it was called? It's called the outer court. The court of the tabernacle. By the way, I find it interesting. You can read Hebrews Hebrews chapter 9, frontwards and backwards in any way you want to, and guess what you won't find there? The outer court. It's not there. Why? Because the purpose of the outer court... done, you won't find it in the New Testament either. Now, it's important that it's in the Old Testament because it gives us a picture of something wonderful, and I want us to consider what it is before we're done here. In the outer court, there were two primary items. There was the brazen altar, that's the place where all the sacrifices would be offered up, and there was the brazen laver. And that was where the priest would ceremonially be cleansed before entering into the tabernacle. They had to wash their hands in that, uh, in that uh, uh, brazen labor before they would actually be able to enter into the tabernacle. And so understand, the priest could not enter into the presence of God without blood first being shed. They couldn't go inside that tabernacle without blood. That comes, that comes very significant at the end of chapter 9. And they couldn't go into that tabernacle without being outwardly cleansed with water. All of this was very uh, symbolic for us uh, in the New Testament time here. And so here's what the Bible tells us now in the New Testament. Jesus, as our high priest, he came and shed his blood to atone for our sins. That brazen altar, everything it pointed to was Calvary. And the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus also came as our high priest to communicate to us his word to cleanse our minds. Both of those, the brazen labor and the brazen altar, typify the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now let me show you where the Bible teaches us this before we're done. His blood, the Bible clearly tells us, cleanses us from all of our guilt of sin so that we can freely enter in to God's presence in the tabernacle. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Look at it in your notes. It says, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship, one with another. And read that last phrase. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse number 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is talking about the blood cleansing of Jesus Christ in this chapter of Scripture. And the blood cleansing of Jesus Christ provides to us fellowship. It provides to us the ability to go in, to enjoy fellowship, intimacy, the presence of God. Now, that's the brazen altar. The blood of Jesus Christ that was shed teaches us something about that. What about the brazen labor? Well, the Bible teaches us that, that water that they would wash their hands with before they could enter into the tabernacle, it also represents something that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. His word, Jesus' word, The Bible teaches us, sanctifies our minds so that we can freely and unashamedly enter into God's presence. Look at John chapter 17 in your notes. In verse 17, Jesus said this. This is Jesus' great high priestly prayer. He prayed, sanctify them through thy what? Truth. Thy word is truth. You Want to know how you're set apart? the word of God. Amen. The Lord teaches us through his word. Now, this was a, an immediate thing in the sense of, hey, as soon as Jesus Christ finished his work and communicated his word, it, it was as done as it is ever going to be. But for many of us, it, was, it is progressive in the sense of our understanding of it and learning through the spirit of God what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And it's a growth process. And the Bible teaches that throughout the scripture. But what the Bible does clearly teach is that we are sanctified through the washing of the water of God's word, which is a demonstration of everything that brazen labor outside the tabernacle had to to demonstrate for us. Look at Ephesians chapter five and verse 25. If you're still with me, say amen. Amen. Don't, Don't lose me. Verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. There you go, wives. Nudge them in the side here. You got your chance. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. He what? It's interesting to me. He might sanctify and cleanse. Verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Don't miss this. In the Old Covenant, the priests had to go to that brazen labor to outwardly cleanse themselves. Here's what we want to do. When it comes to our mind of what the presence of God is, we want to put up another brazen labor to outwardly cleanse ourselves from every perceived guilt that we have in our life. It is no different from what we often make it out to be. Jesus through his word, has not merely outwardly cleansed you. He has inwardly cleansed you. Again, this is the spiritual demonstration of everything that the the old tabernacle physically represented. Now, look at this. That's why Jesus told us in John 15 and verse 3, Now ye are clean through the what? Word. Word which I have spoken unto you. Jesus takes his word and he purifies our minds, renews our minds, renews our hearts. That's what the Bible tells us here. He cleans us through his word. It's a cleansing agent in our life that the Bible communicates to us here. And so as you walk through this life, God's spirit will work in your mind through his word to bring you into conformity to the very image of Jesus Christ. Now... Look at what the Bible has to say in uh, the, the next verse there in your notes. Is it 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3? Is that what it is? Yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 13. It says, Not as Moses, which put up a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end that, of that which is abolished, had been done away with. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Now, that is not talking about the veil of the tabernacle. It is talking about the veil that Moses would wear over his face. And There's a little bit of a different distinction there, so don't get confused. Verse 15 says, But even until this day uh, when Moses has read the law, in other words, the veil is upon their heart, nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Liberty, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And Praise God, the Holy Spirit of God is at work, guiding us, directing us in each one of our hearts and minds as we get to live in the presence of God. And by the Spirit, behold the glory of the Lord, He does a work of transformation in every one of our lives. And oh, how important that is for us to understand. Now, here's the thing. We're living in a tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Friend, I am living in the very presence of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has set up camp in my heart and I can boldly enter in to the very presence of God. One day, as the apostle Paul indicated, when he said, "I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand," that word "departure" is a Greek word that literally speaks of taking down a tent and moving on. Departure. One day, if Jesus doesn't come back first, we'll take down this earthly, tab- this, this physical tabernacle that the Lord set up camp in, and we'll graduate to the very physical and very presence of God in heaven. And this is the last verse in your notes that I want to show you here. Let's read this together. I'll read it out loud and you read silently. It says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 4, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who has also given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. That's the presence of God with us right now. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, but not by sight. We are confident, I say rather, and willing to be absent from the body And to be present with the Lord. What a day that's going to be. When this earthly tabernacle, which is just something that God relates to us now through while we're in this pilgrimage, in this wilderness period, one day it'll be taken down because we'll be in the very eternal presence of God for all of eternity. But that fact in no way belittles the truth that Hebrews chapter 9 conveys to us, that you and I right now can enjoy the very presence of God as we walk through this lifetime. For He has come and brought His presence into our own hearts. I'm not fighting to stay in God's presence. I can ne- he will never forsake me. Now sometimes, I ignore the fact that He's there. Sometimes, I still struggle. But that does not mean that he's left. That does not mean that I can do anything to make him leave. When God looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, there's so much here. You know what was in that mercy seat? The Ten Commandments. And when the the offering of the atonement was offered on that sacrifice... Do you think that God saw the broken Ten Commandments? No. He saw the blood. We want God to relate to us by our own effort. The only way we can have a relationship with God is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We can enjoy that intimacy. Stop trying to put the veil back up, stop trying to put Jesus back on a cross. Just enjoy the relationship you have been brought into through your mediator, Jesus Christ. I found a way through the blood past the veil to the holy of holies with God. There by His power over sin I prevail, I can walk in the path that he trod, there through the blood of Christ I stand, glorified Son at the Father's right hand. There I can plead, I can claim, I can have all that he purchased for me. That's what we learned from this passage of Scripture. I'm glad. By the way, when you begin to enjoy this intimacy with God, the words of 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 28 will ring more true to you than they ever have before. And I leave you with this. It says in 1 John 2:28, "And now little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming." The one thing John wanted those little children to know, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Why? So that when he shall appear, you'll see him coming with a smile and not with a religion-made, self-made, perceived psychosis of condemnation. God is inviting you into His presence when you trust Jesus as your Savior and He'll never leave you or forsake you. Christians, it's time we start enjoying the intimacy that we've been given through our faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes with me.